From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may know Jackson Pollock, the painter famous for his iconic drip paintings. But what do you know about his wife, artist Lee Krasner? On Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting, just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. This is the Pittsburgh CityCast with Tim Benz, presented by Bet Rivers. I would say I had a meal. <laughs> uh, spicy pork and broccoli. It's not great. <laughs> on behalf of Louis Deming, I'm going to place the over-under on spicy pork and broccoli being served in hmm, 90.5% of the households in western Pennsylvania. What do you think? I'm Tim Benz. This is the Pittsburgh CityCast. Pens and Rangers, Game 2 with Deming in all likelihood starting in goal after Casey dismissed injury in Game 1 against the Rangers. And he was on the ice, Deming was, I'm talking about today, along with Alex DiOrio. Casey DeSmith was not, according to our Seth Rorba, who you're going to hear from later on in the Pittsburgh CityCast today, brought to you by Bet Rivers. Download the app today. Or go to BetRivers.com. Domingue 17 for 17 and save opportunities so far after jumping into the fray during overtime number two on Tuesday night. We'll see what he's got for tonight. We'll discuss that with Seth. It is hockey playoff time and Bet Rivers has a special offer through the entire NHL playoffs. Throughout the playoffs, place three same-game parlays of $10 or more on each round and receive a $10 free bet at the conclusion of each round. Think of it as a betting hat trick. Terms and conditions apply. See the site for details. Create your ideal combo with same-game parlays on the BetRivers app and at BetRivers.com. Presented by Rivers Casino Pittsburgh. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. The Rangers, minus 155 to win tonight. Pens, plus 132 to win 
The puck line is minus 200 for the Pens at a goal and a half in their favor. For the Rangers, at minus a goal and a half, it's plus 163. I like that number for New York. I can see the Rangers winning 3-1 to one with an empty net goal or 4-2 to two with an empty net goal. I just like the bounce back factor tonight for them and the Panthers, especially the home teams. Look at Minnesota last night. Prime example. They were great. That could have been 7-2 to instead it was 6-2. to Look at even the Lightning on the road after getting throttled in Game 1 by the Maple Leafs. They come back and win 5-3, to and that one was 5-1 in the third in favor of Tampa before the Leafs got a couple of late ones. And another home team that really put on a clinic after a tough outing in Game 1 was the Edmonton Oilers. To go back to the home team bounce-back factor that I'm talking about with the Rangers, they won 6 to nothing after losing 4-3 to to the Kings in Game 1 last night. I liked the bounce-back teams like those examples last night. I like the bounce-back teams again tonight. Florida, minus 250 to win, minus 107 on the puck line even. Wow, I still don't think that's a bad bet, though. But the Panthers... Didn't play well in game one against the Capitals, so I guess I get it. I bet the Panthers look like the Wild did last night or like the Oilers did last night. I think they cruise. Nashville a bounce back? and eh, not so much. Colorado at 385 to win straight, minus 385. It's minus 155 on the puck line. They're just a better team. This is a different example, I think. Uh, they flexed it in game one. I go puck line there in favor of the Avs. Maybe lower scoring, perhaps go under Six and a half at minus 130, but I do like Colorado again. I've got a lot less of a feel in the Flames-Stars game. Dallas plus 200 to win after a one nothing loss in game one. I can see it, but the puck line for Calgary at minus a goal and a half pays out at plus 112. I can certainly see that too. The under isn't very expensive at minus 112, under five and a half. I'd lean that way, even though the over is at minus 105. You know what? A fun in-game parlay there might be Flames at minus one and a half and the over. A Flames 4-2 win doesn't sound completely nuts to me, does it to you? So keep an eye on that one. Uh, Back to the Rangers and the Penguins. Two other bets that I like. Sid is plus 170 to score tonight. I thought he played really well in game one. He just set up Jake Gensel all night. I think Crosby scores tonight. And I like Vetrano to score. It's almost shocking when he doesn't score against the Penguins. So he's due in my book at plus 240. I mean, the Sid thing, it was being talked about on the broadcast nationally. Not sure how much it was talked about locally, but you could see it with your own eyes how the Rangers players just gravitated to Sidney Crosby anytime he had the puck. And they left Jake Gensel all by himself. Crosby certainly noticed it. He gave up the puck, and Gensel scored twice in those opportunities. Look, I know he's Sidney Crosby, but if you split two defenders, I'd rather have one defender take on Sid than have two guys go to Sid and leave Jake Gensel all by himself. I think the Rangers learned that lesson the hard way. Let me rephrase that. The Rangers were taught that lesson the hard way in game one. Let's see if they learn from it tonight. But I think Sid, one way or another, gets on the scoreboard. And you know what? The Rangers are now at plus 140 to win the series. That's a great deal. I might get back in and bet the Rangers again to win the series and get paid out in the black this time because I don't necessarily think that just because the game was as memorable and dynamic as it was, you know, because it was a 3-0-T win for the Penguins, that the Rangers are ruined. 
Maybe a game like that hurts you later in the series, but not necessarily the opener. I mean, like, do you think the Penguins are now the better team three nights out of six with a third-string goalie and maybe without Ricard Raquel? I I don't. Based on how the regular season wrapped up, I would have been impressed if the Penguins had simply survived game one of their Eastern Conference first-round playoff series against the Rangers. Actually, considering how things started Tuesday night at Madison Square Garden, I'm just happy they were able to survive the first period. When it was 8.25 left in the first, the Penguins trailed New York 1-0 already. They were being outshot 10-3, and the Rangers had already dished out 15 hits. It was the allegedly playoff-inexperienced Rangers that were taking it to the Pens, and Mike Sullivan's team was back on its heels. Yet, the Pens survived all the way into a third overtime, winning 4-3 in a grind that lasted almost five hours. And when I say survive, I mean barely. So like, keep that in mind here as we analyze what happened in game one. They lost Casey to Smith. He left the game in the second overtime. Raquel got knocked out of the game by Ryan Lindgren, who's also banged up too now. Chris Letang logged 46 minutes of ice time. Marcus Pedersen and John Marino were getting hit like they were wide receivers for the Steelers in the 70s against the Raiders. You know, they were like... Juan and Stallworth, and like the Rangers were the Raiders' secondary. Now that said, credit Marino, 106 minutes in, fires the shot towards the net that becomes the game winner off a deflection by Evgeny Malkin. You know, so what does that mean long term? What's the carryover from that marathon for tonight's game two against the Rangers? Or how about the remaining six of the series? Well, starting net, you credit backup goaltender Louis Domingue for sure for stopping all 17 shots that you saw. 17 shots in 17 minutes, but it's still 17 shots in 17 minutes. Good for him for doing that after sitting on the bench for roughly four hours since warm-ups, but the Penguins can't allow that to the Rangers again in Game 2, especially with Domingue now likely starting. However, if DeSmith has some sort of lasting effect from his lower body injury that caused him to leave the game, it might be a Pyrrhic victory. For as good as Domingue played, weren't the Pens tempting fate as it was entering this postseason with Tristan Jari injured? Now their third netminder is supposed to outduel Shesterkin, who's the likely Vezina Trophy winner. I mean, I, I, I love Jeff Zakoff and Duck Hodges, those analogies that were flying around Twitter overnight following the third overtime. But even as fun as those stories were, they had fairly quick expiration dates. Like, Johan Hedberg might be the better analogy, but even Moose, he was 27, and he got nine regular season games under his belt before being thrust into the playoffs in 01. Deming's 29, and he's played four games over the last three years before game one. The Shesterkin angle is a push-pull thing, too. Like, he was a boogeyman for the Penguins this season, Uh, Just four goals in four games between the clubs did he allow. But the Pens had that many on Tuesday alone. So a lot of Penguins fans think that they've cracked the code on Shesterkin. But for as good as the Penguins goal scorers have to feel about that, Shesterkin still made 79 saves in the defeat. It's almost an NHL record. So I wouldn't go so far as to suggest the Penguins cracked a code or anything. If they threw 83 shots at the net, and Shesterkin made 79 saves. If there's one angle that I point to that I think carries some weight, though, it is the raw shot total for the Penguins. I mean, 83 shots against the Rangers. They only had 101 in the regular season games. The Penguins 
were more often able to break out of their zone, get through the neutral zone, get into the offensive end, set up and do damage. In particular, watch the Penguins' second goal when Crosby fed Gensel for the second time for a goal after moving the puck briskly out of their zone. It was a real nice breakout, real clean, real efficient, tape to tape. To me, that's something tactical that the Penguins may be able to replicate in Game 2. And if the Rangers are supposedly the faster team, if there is some fatigue that holds over to Game 2 after the three-overtime game, I'd imagine New York would be the team that would be more disadvantaged because their speed game could be more adversely impacted. So if you're looking for positives to affix for hope for Game 2 and for the rest of the series, I'd start with those things. The Penguins generating shots, the Penguins maybe figuring out the breakout issue, the fact that the Penguins might be the team that's a little less affected by playing the three-overtime game. I I see that. But the Pens can't get out-hit like that every night in this series. I think the hit stack can be overrated because it connotes that you don't have the puck if you're hitting the other team. But early in the game, some of their skaters were getting bulldozed by, like, Alex Lafreniere and Ryan Reeves. They were bringing the thunder. The Pens also can't count on 75 giveaways from the Rangers again. Now, that stat seems to me like it's kept completely different in Madison Square Garden maybe than it is in other NHL arenas. I almost thought it was a typo, but I kept checking and it wasn't. The Penguins at 45. You know, it's a completely objective stat for how the stat keepers tend to keep it, but still 75 is atrocious. I don't care if you played 10 overtimes. And the Pens also can't bank on the benefit of a goal getting taken off the board as they did when New York appeared to take a 4-3 lead with just over three minutes remaining only to see the disallowed goal get taken off the board because of goaltender interference. I picked the Rangers to win the series in six. I picked the Penguins to win in game one. So the Penguins being up one nothing isn't a stunner to me. How they got there, though, I'm not sure how you draw much more than we already have and associate it with series analysis left to go. When you get these marathon extra overtime games like this one midway through the series, the carryover is more impactful and dictates the outcome more. For Penguins, Rangers, though, there are potentially six more games remaining. And by that point, a lot of what happened on Tuesday will be forgotten, except, of course, the story of Louis Moose or Duck Deming and his spicy pork, which, as I said, if that's not a special on every menu downtown before Game 3, if Deming is still starting, then we haven't figured out how this thing works yet in Pittsburgh after 16 consecutive playoff appearances, I guess. I I put this on the bar and restaurant owners across western Pennsylvania to carry forth their part of the mission. Okay, uh, some baseball odds and more hockey talk with Seth Rorba in just 30 seconds in the Pittsburgh CityCast. UFC 274 is Saturday, and Bet Rivers has a special profit boost for the big event. All players that log in on Saturday will receive a 20% profit boost on a UFC 274 parlay. Make your ideal UFC 274 combo on the main events, undercard, or combination of both. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This profit boost packs an extra punch at BetRivers, bet on the app, or at BetRivers.com. Presented by Rivers Casino. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. little baseball discussion. Before the Pittsburgh CityCast shifts back to hockey and we preview Game 2 of Rangers-Penguins tonight, 
I want to talk about the Cincinnati Reds as the next opponent for the Pirates. The Reds are in minus 200 territory every time they take the field now. Brewers are at plus 250 to beat them today after an 18-4 win on Wednesday. Kutch had four hits for Milwaukee. He's at minus 210 to get a hit today. That's a smart play if you're betting on this podcast before that game goes off. One other batter prop before I continue with the Reds-Pirates stuff. Josh Bell, to get at least two hits, is at plus 163. You know how good he can be this time of year when he's feeling it, May and June. When he's swinging this well, Bell is a good bet to stay hot. Now, he did go 0 for 4 against the Rockies last night. I think he's due to get back at it. I think he's fourth in the National League right now at 349, going up against Antonio Senzatella at 310 for the Rockies. Not terrible numbers, but Bell can get to him. Like I said, plus 163 if he gets two hits. Maybe swing for the fences as Josh Bell swings for the fences and get yourself paid out there. But back to the Reds. If you're looking to bet on the Pirates for a change instead of constantly betting against them, check out these numbers as they get set for a four-gamer in three days against Cincy. Rarely are the Pirates going to be heavy favorites, but for the next four games, they might be. After all, the Reds are dreadful. An 18-4 loss to the Brewers on Wednesday, as I talked about. Uh, we'll see what they do today, but the Reds are 3-21, and by far the worst record in Major League Baseball. Every other team has at least eight victories so far. Losers of eight in a row. Cincinnati has scored only 74 runs entering Thursday's game. With 89, the Pirates are the only other team with less than 90 in the National League. The Reds' run differential is minus 82, easily the worst in the Major League. Second worst is the Royals at minus 39. Again, all these numbers as of the start of play on Thursday. David Bell, his team now has allowed 156 runs. The Nationals at 135 are the only other team to yield 130. So aside from all that, the Reds have been awesome. Pirates... 10 and 14, they've got an off day today. They face the Reds Friday night, twice for a doubleheader on Saturday, and again on Sunday afternoon. We might actually have to go with bet on Mitch Keller Saturday. It feels weird to even suggest, but maybe. So keep an eye at betrivers.com to see how the numbers fluctuate if you want to actually bet on the Pirates a little bit this weekend. But back to hockey talk with the Pens game tonight. Here's more with Seth Rorba. He is our beat writer from the Trib. He is covering the Rangers-Penguins game at MSG tonight. And he caught up with me on the Breakfast with Ben's podcast at Trib Live. So I figured to give you a chance to hear some hockey analysis from Seth before face-off tonight. Who has more left in the tank for Game 2? We'll start that part of the conversation right now with Seth. And Seth, you were at the skate on Wednesday. Uh, I presume at Madison Square Garden, right? Or were they somewhere else? Were they at a practice uh, no, facility? No, at MSG, I don't, they probably should have just had bunks in the dressing room because you know, I think there was maybe about 13 hours worth of uh, time between the game ending and when they showed up for practice. But, yeah, it was at MSG on Wednesday. Could you tell if the ice was any better? <laughs> uh, it suddenly looked okay, uh, you know, at least for the uh, emergency backup goaltender they had on the ice there. That uh, was the first game action I guess he saw in quite a while. Um, they actually had to kind of have him on for practice there uh, because Louis Domingue was the only able-bodied goalie they had available to him. So, um, as far as ice conditions, I mean, I don't know that's exclusive to the Madison Square Garden. I mean, when you get in the May, it's humid. Uh, 
Uh, we've seen this in Pittsburgh. We've seen this in Boston. Uh, there's maybe a few places like, I don't know, maybe Edmonton or Winnipeg where the ice will hold up uh, just at this time of the calendar year. But um, but no, the ice wasn't ideal. Uh, they had to kind of resurface it a few times at the start of uh, you know various periods. There. And when you get into six overtimes, that doesn't help matters either. So um, that's just a reality of playoff hockey uh, based on how the NHL is scheduled right now. Were the players talking about that at all? Was it even more of a slog in that third overtime with the ice being as uh, squishy as it was? It really wasn't much of a talking point. Uh, I mean, Evgeny Malkin kind of acknowledged it just as part of like the general fatigue uh, that you get into when you play games like that. Um, he was talking about his skates were getting kind of heavy and you know it was kind of watery and stuff like that out there. Uh, Brian Russ made a joke that he thought his skates gained about 15 pounds in water weight from sweat and the water on the ice. So um it really wasn't a major talking point i mean the penguins had 83 shots on net so uh which was like i think five short of the nhl record so i, I don't know that it necessarily hurt them in terms of you know getting scoring chances and whatnot but um no i mean again i i guess i think that's just a, a a byproduct of you know the nhl when you're playing hockey in may and you know if your team's good enough you end up going to june and that's just uh just a reality you have to deal with seth i want to go there next as it relates to the shot total against Shesterkin, I think a lot of people are saying, well, they cracked the code on Shesterkin and they figured out the goalie after he was such a boogeyman against them all year long. And I actually tend to look at the shot total and be more impressed at that. The fact that they maybe figured out a way around the Rangers busting up their breakout and possessing the puck through the neutral zone, getting it out of their own and getting shots on goal because... Shesterkin still made 79 saves. So it's, it's not, if there's a code, I don't think it's entirely cracked. I, I just think they played five periods. And beyond that, or beyond five periods, and, and beyond that, you know, I, I think the 83 shots after they only got 101 in four games, like that to me is the actual bigger number. Do you agree or disagree? Yeah. Um, I, the game kind of unfolded in almost two phases to me. I mean, it was basically the first period and the rest of the game from the Penguins' perspective. Um, they were kind of overwhelmed by just uh, uh, the Rangers, you know, ferocity in terms of the hitting and stuff like that and some of the chances the Rangers were generating. They actually got outshot 15 to 10 in the first period. But then um, the second period happened, and it was just, yeah, yeah. the Rangers scored a couple goals there, including a shorthanded goal that's, you know, always kind of a killer there. But um, the Penguins put 25 shots in, alone in that second period to, to the Rangers' eight. Um, they dominated the puck possession really after that point. So, um, it's again, I don't know, you know, the proverbial switch got flipped or maybe something just clicked in, clicked in for them after, you know, seeing Ricard Raquel in some distress there or what, but, um, really after, after the first period, things really kind of slanted in terms of the Penguins favor. And, um, in, in, in the Rangers defense, I mean, they played a good amount of that game, at least in the overtime portions of it without Ryan Lindgren, uh, the player who ended up injuring Ricard Raquel. Um, he's on their top pairing. He's almost kind of like a poor man's Brian Dumlin in terms of the responsibilities he has defensively. So that's a significant loss for them. I, I think Andre Miller, who's on their second pairing, um, he's a guy that uh, missed some shifts in one of the overtimes. My, my mind blurs as far as when, what, which, what overtime it was. But um, they played a decent portion of that game with only four defensemen for the Rangers. And I, I applaud the Penguins for trying to try maybe taking advantage of that. And, and you know, no one's kind of crying for the Rangers in, in that sense. I mean, you know, the Penguins obviously played most of that game without, you know, top six forward and Ricard Raquel. So they had to kind of shuffle their lines, but um, they seemed to make the right moves in that situation. And um, just as a result, they ended up bombarding um, uh, Igor Shostarkin with so many shots and, you know, 
full marks to him for playing such a marvelous game. Um, it wasn't just a matter of the Penguins throwing just pucks on net for the sake of it. I mean, it wasn't just like a bunch of junk shots like you see the teams like the Boston Bruins do uh, throw on net. Um, a lot of them were quality chances, you know, late in the third period there, you know, or middle of the third period there, Kasperi Kapanen had that wonderful shot off the faceoff sequence in the right circle there and just a, a beautiful look from the slot and just Stark and just robbed it like it was in slow motion. So um, a lot of quality in, in, just in, in that quantity by the Penguins. And again, Igor Shosturkin was up to the task. I mean, he did not really give up too many, uh, you know, soft chances or, or just bad goals, I would argue. Uh, he made the Penguins earn that victory. Seth Rubble with us from New York. Why, Seth? Why were they able to get 83 shots when they could only get 101 before? And I agree with you what you said about how things changed starting with the second period. It was almost like a four-period and change game after the first instead of five and change because of the way things uh, altered after the first 20 minutes. But what was the biggest reason why they were able to generate more offensive pressure? Was it zone puck possession once they were in the offensive end? Was it the breakout? I know the breakout was crisp and really almost unassailed by the Rangers defense on the second Penguins goal from Gensel. But but where do you think the offense was most generated from? Well, for one, I mean, the Penguins had, what, five power play opportunities uh, to the Rangers one. Uh, and the Rangers one only lasted, what, 21 seconds, I think. Uh, so, I mean, they had a clear advantage in terms of, uh, um, you know, just power play opportunities. And you're always going to load up there a little bit. And you know, the Penguins certainly got uh, a crucial goal from Brian Russell in that five-on-three sequence. So, um, but beyond that, five-on-five five play, um, I, I think maybe to a certain extent was puck management. I don't think you saw nearly as many careless plays with the pucks, giveaways. I, I think that, that was something that was a pretty common theme, at least in the two games here in New York during the regular season, where um, whether it's a bad pass or maybe just a, you know, a bad clear or whatever, um, you didn't see that nearly as frequently in this game uh, on game one. So um, I just think sound puck management, and, you know, that's kind of a boring answer, but you know, that seemed to be the biggest difference to me uh, from – you know, those two regular season games. One thing that should be pointed about, at least about those two regular season games here in New York, um, that's when the Penguins were kind of dealing with um, that flu bug, the non-COVID virus, where, you know, it seemed like every other day, maybe one guy or two guys were out of the lineup, for, you know, the game or even practice. I think the first game of getting Malkin was absent. Then the second game, Sidney Crosby was absent. So um, those two games kind of happened at a time when the Penguins were, I mean, yeah, no, not that anyone's had an overly healthy lineup this year, but that came at a pretty crucial time when they were dealing with the flu bug. And just and that wasn't just the players who were out. I think there were players in the lineup that were kind of gutting it out those nights as well. So, um, yeah, again, you know, the Penguins were dealing with significant injuries, as we all know. Uh, Ricardo Raquel, Casey Smith, Jason Zucker, Tristan Jari, et cetera. But um, I, I think they were a much healthier squad, at least in game one, compared to those two regular season games that were played in New York uh, a few months ago. Seth, I got to run this number by you because I've never seen anything like it. 75 giveaways for the Rangers. Did you see that? I did not, but uh, I mean, I, my mind's still kind of frazzled after all of that. But uh, um, yeah, I, w- I would dare say that was not an overly clean game for the Rangers. I, I get that, but like, you know, I know there's a lot of uh, variance from building to building when it comes to the giveaway and takeaway stats, but. 75 to me seems absolutely crazy. It certainly makes the Penguins' 45 giveaways look uh, very clean and crisp, though, right? Um, well, yeah, that's the thing is the Penguins <laughs> had 45. You, you're looking at the same stat sheet I am, right? Yeah, I'm, I have it here literally in front of me. Um, yeah, it's 
again, you're playing hockey over base. You're almost playing two whole games there. Uh, so uh, the numbers are always going to be inflated. I mean, I you know, feel like thing, the 46 guys, minutes of yeah, ice time. Exactly. That's crazy, too. But I feel like the guys who do the takeaway giveaway stats at PPG Page Arena, you'd have to play four games to get to 75 for a team. Yeah, every building's different with a lot of those real-time stats. And that's stuff like giveaways, takeaways, block shots, hits. Um, even something simple as a shot or a shot attempt can be very different from building the building. Um, hits is the one total, I, I think, um, just you know, speaking in a bigger picture subject. Hits is the one thing you can always look at and say, okay, that's a clear difference from building the building. Um, I, I think I looked it up one time with uh, Cal Clutterbuck, you know, New York Islanders, four checkers. He was he's kind of like a version of Brandon Tanef, uh, routinely among the league leaders in hits. Um, whether it was during his time with the New York Islanders or Minnesota Wild, you would see a very clear difference in his hits at home games versus on the road. And it was almost by like, you know, double a lot of times. So, like a Ray Lewis um, tackles? Yeah. So, um, you know, the NHL's only been keeping a lot of these stats here for maybe like 20 years. And, you know, we're in this era of like advanced metrics and things like that. And so much of it's based on time on ice. And again, time on ice has only been around for like 20 years as far as like an official statistic. And um, I would dare say it's still a very inexact science. There's no universal standard for a lot of these real time statistics. St- um, uh, to st- statistics and um, it's a very flawed uh, numbers, you know, and I can tell you a lot of times the penguins, if we ever bring them up to Mike Sullivan or whoever in a press conference, um, a lot of times they'll just dismiss them. I, I remember one time I asked Nick Benino when he was here uh, about faceoffs, and he's like, yeah, those, those numbers are BS. We keep our own numbers. The numbers that the NHL gives out, you know, those guys don't know what they're talking about. Um, and a lot of players look at that that way. And, you know, that even goes off into when you're talking about things like arbitration and stuff like that, those statistics are the only numbers really allowed in some kind of like, you know, formal legal hearing like that. So, um, you know, I'm going off on a whole tangent here about the statistics and things like that here, but, um, it's a big point of consternation among players, coaches, executives in the league, as far as how those numbers are maintained. And, um, you know, the, the numbers we see here with, uh, with what, they were kept for game one in Madison Square Garden. They could have been a whole different set of numbers if that game was played in PPG Paints Arena. You mentioned no one's going to cry for the Rangers. I tend to disagree. I think the media and the fans are already crying. Uh, I heard a lot of that today. Boomer Esiason on his morning show, man, I don't think he's cried that hard since the Bengals <laughs> lost to the 49ers in the Super Bowl. Um they're upset about the goal being disallowed. They're upset about not having as many power play chances as the Penguins. Um, they're upset about a Sidney Crosby slash and a lot of other things. Let's go to the disallowed goal. What were your opinions on that? Um, I, I honestly, when it first happened, I thought, hey, the Penguins have nothing to lose here. They're just going to take their challenge. And, you know, you know, if it's wrong, it's wrong and they lose the game. But, um, you know, looking it over, I mean, you know, Capo Caco, you know, went full board in the net, you know, knocked the Smith out of play there. Uh, I know there was a little bit of contact there with Brian Dumlin from behind, but I, I don't necessarily sense that, uh, Caco's, uh, um, momentum was dictated by that shove or contact from Brian Dumlin. So it seemed like a pretty sound play to me. And, you know, by the way, the Penguins are now eight for eight, including the regular season coaches challenges. So, uh, full marks to their video coaches, Andy Saucier and Madison nickel, um, They've established such an almost automatic trust with Mike Sullivan and company when it comes to the, you know those you know coaches challenges and um, they've saved you know a game or two here. I mean, most famously, I think Andy Saucier was responsible for was it Game Six, uh, Pittsburgh Tampa Bay back in 2017 yep. or Game Five, one of those. But um, 
um, you know, they've made their mark here in a significant way, and that continued uh, with game one there. So um, as far as the reaction from New York, you know, no less of an authority than Gerard Gallant, the New York Rangers coach, he said after the games, like, I, I, I would like to argue it, but I don't think I can. I thought it was a 50-50 call, and, it, and uh, I didn't think we were going to get it, so I can't really argue with it. So, I mean, he even, you know, was kind of gracious in terms of just agreeing with the conclusion there. So, um, again, as you know, as far as, uh, you know, the penalties and things like that, I would assume that maybe gets evened up. Uh, you know, maybe there's some private conversations uh, that we're not privy to uh, between coaches and referees where, you know, going the game too, you know, you, maybe you work with the referees, you even that thing out, even that a little bit out. So, um, again, I, I, you know, the Penguins, uh, you know, maybe a little bit angry with uh, the officials in terms of the Ricard Raquel situation. Yeah, I was going to say, but, if we're talking makeups, was it a direct makeup um, for Raquel? I don't think it was a makeup. I, I just, I, I, I think you know, you're so far removed from that portion of the game to this, and this is you know a situation where the game's basically over if you award the goal there. So, um, I don't think it was necessarily a makeup there. Um, uh, but uh, you know, like I said, I mean, the officiating standard is very inconsistent in the league. I don't think that's any kind of new revelatory uh, notion that I'm bringing up there. But um, uh, again, I, I would suspect maybe we see some things differently. I don't know if they're for or against the Penguins, but I, I would suspect we'll see some different standards uh, by game two. That's just the nature of the NHL. Yeah, they can call a penalty in overtime if they want to get one of those things over with. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if those guys wanted to get out to the last call here, although it's last call is 4 a.m. here in New York State, but um, uh, if they wanted to end the game and, you know, get to bed, you know, at a normal hour, they could have. Um, but, uh, you know, like I said, referees were – very low to call penalties unless it's something automatic like you know delay of game or high stick or whatever so um and you know for the most part i didn't see much in terms of you know things that could have been called for infractions at least in the overtime i think there was one play in the third period where jake Gensel got tripped pretty clearly uh all in the inboards there in the new york zone that could have been called but i i didn't see anything too egregious as far as uh things that should have been let, you know, otherwise penalized in, in the overtime or whatnot. So, um, again, it wasn't without its faults, but I thought the officials uh, played a fairly – or called a fairly clean game. And uh, I'll name them. I'll give them credit. Chris Lee, Frederick LeCourier. I apologize if I mispronounced his name. And the linesman Johnny Murray and Shandor Alfonso. I thought they called a fairly, you know, you know, okay game uh, under some, you know, interesting circumstances. What are you hearing about Raquel, also Zucker, and Casey DeSmith? Uh, Mike Sullivan gave us an update today. He basically labeled all three of those guys day to day. He said they're all being evaluated. Jason Zucker participated in an optional practice today, you know, regular colored jersey. It wasn't exactly a physical affair by any means, but it seemed like he took maybe some contact. So, and even, you know, before game one, Mike Sullivan stopped short of ruling out Jason Zucker for game two. So, um, if Ricardo Kells out, you, know, you certainly have a viable replacement there for our top six forward there. So, uh, but again, you know, it's playoff time. They're not going to give us many specifics, but certainly things seem to be uh, upbeat or optimistic on the Jason Zucker front. But um, I, I would suspect Casey Smith or um, uh, Ricardo Raquel are, you know, long shots to be nice uh, to play in game two. If Casey Smith is a long shot, and by the way, speaking of the injury, is this one of these things? Because I've had it you know, where you cramp so bad it kind of turns into a significant pull or what feels like a tear? I mean, is that what the guess is? Or did he hurt something on a specific play? Did you notice anything? Um, I didn't notice anything specific. I mean, he's a guy that, uh, I mean, it's all reflexes and quickness for him. 
I mean, he said, and he was a guy famously, you know, even last postseason wasn't available because he had a groin injury. So I'm hesitant to label it anything, but uh, just based on his body language and the way he kind of limped off the ice there, um, I, I would suspect it's maybe something in that realm. But uh, no, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure it's uh, anything to do with cramps or dehydration or, or anything that maybe kind of, you know, grew out of that. I just think it's just a. Uh, um, again, just my very amateur medical background, I, I would suspect it's maybe something like groin or something along those lines, uh, just based on his history and the way he was uh, walking off the ice as badly as he had to uh, on, in, on, in game one. What would you think of how Domingue played? I mean, he was stout. I mean, he took a couple shots uh, fairly early. Uh, he even joked the first shot he took from Adam Fox was right in the belly, and he said, that, that gets you right into the game right away. So. Um, That's sort of what uh, Jake Caulfield was... said after the game on uh, AT&T Sportsnet. He said he, the first two shots on him couldn't have been better. Like, yeah, I mean, they were pretty... They got him going. Yeah, they were pretty squared up. Um, I wouldn't. I would dare say they're not. They weren't all that challenging. So you know, you know, you, know, you get the endorphins kicking in there a little bit. So with those shots, uh, so I, you know, he played well. Um, we'll see how that maybe adrenaline carries over into Game Two if he's in net. Um, he's a, a goaltender with some acumen. I mean, he was a fourth round pick, uh, back, you know, about eight, nine years ago. Uh, he has, he's played in the NHL for eight years. He's dealing with six teams. So, you know, clearly he's never been good enough to stick in one place, but, um, he had a solid season for Wilkes-Barre Scranton and a team that was fairly mediocre this year. Um, we've seen him play well in the two regular season games he played in, uh, that two, one overtime win in San Jose back in January. Then towards the end of the regular season, he was, I thought pretty stout in that, uh, loss to Philadelphia. I think it was a four, one loss with an empty net goal. So, um, again, it's not ideal when you're down to your third string goaltender. Uh, and even to make matters worse, they had to recall, uh, um, Alex DiOrio, an undrafted goaltender who's uh, never played an NHL game uh, from Wilkes-Barre Scranton on Wednesday to be you know, potentially their backup goaltender for game two. So um, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel here. Uh, Tristan Jari still doesn't seem like he's close to making return. Mike Sullivan indicated that uh, um, he's still working out off the ice. So to my knowledge, he has not been on the ice since um, since suffering his injury on April 14th there. So Alex DiOrio is your only other goaltender in the system under on who's healthy and under an, uh, a current NHL contract. Um, they had that prospect Philip Lindbergh from UMass that they signed in the, in the off season. And he's been out since November with an ankle injury. And, um, I mean, they have no other goaltenders after Alex DiOrio here, unless they go out Jeez. and sign a guy to a PTO or something like that, or, you know, an emergency backup or whatever. So um, it's a fairly dire situation, but I would dare I would dare say uh, Louis Domingue did quite a bit to instill some confidence, not just in himself and his teammates, but just for anyone who has a, a motivation here with the Penguins. Did you find the restaurant that supplied the not-so-good spicy pork? <laughs> From what I understand, that was a, a team-issued meal, uh, and I did not get to leave MSG until maybe about 2 or 3 in the morning here, so uh, my dining options were fairly limited as I tried to get back to Weehawk in New Jersey. Does the ferry run that late? It does not. I uh, I took a boat over for the morning skate and you know for the game, and I, I kind of planned on you know taking you know an Uber or whatever. But uh, for after the game, I figured okay, it might be a little bit late. I didn't expect it to be like two or three in the morning late, but uh, um, you know I had a lovely ferry ride uh, for the morning skate and practice here on Wednesday, uh, getting from Weehawk into Manhattan. You can always take the path and figure a way home from Jersey City. I've taken that path ride home at all sorts of terrible hours from Madison Square Garden when we used to be, where were we? We were at the Sheridan in Jersey City for all those years when I was at ESPN. We used to use that hotel as like a trade. So 
I can get you on the path, Seth. I don't know about the ferry to Weehawken. That might be out of my depth. I, I think the uh, path to Jersey City is a little bit beyond uh, my taste for adventure. So, All right, Seth. Appreciate it. Enjoy game two. Anytime, Tim. All right, so my thanks to Seth Rohr about tomorrow. A special, rare fifth edition of the Pittsburgh CityCast in the week. Usually we post four times a week. We're going five this week because of the Kentucky Derby. Anthony Jaskulski will join me. He'll make his return to the Pittsburgh CityCast as we look at Derby odds for tomorrow. A special edition coming up here brought to you by Bet Rivers.